Hey, Tom, how are you doing today? John, how are you doing? Good. Thanks. Thanks for making some time with me. Um, one of the things that I'm so interested in is your background and being at agencies and, and running law firms, uh, dealing with um, all sorts of activity related to financial services. I think you more than most have a really both a great understanding of sort of the infrastructure, but also have had some uh, very candid and I think very useful recommendations on improvement. But let me just start here. Your recent book, 200 Years of American Financial Panics, the subtitle, Crashes, Recessions, Depressions, and the Technology That Will Change It All. Um, I was able to get uh, through this recently. I appreciate the opportunity to, take, to both take a look at it, but dive into it. And I have a ton of questions for you, but let me start with this one. One of the things that's a clear theme throughout your book is what you say a couple of times, the need for smart regulation. For people that don't know, what's, what's your general sense of uh, banking regulation? Obviously, we have multiple regulators. Some of it's confusing. What's your general sense of banking regulation? Then I want to ask you about some of the panics that you cover in your book. Yeah, so th that's a great opening question, John. And just let me say, I'm, uh, I'm completely honored to be asked to do this with you because I have so much respect for you and all you've done over the many, many decades that we've known each other. And without date, dating each other, I know that we've both been around a long time and seen <laughs> a lot. So I really appreciate your asking me to do this. So let me start with a, with a small story that sort of will get into the question of smart regulation. In March of 2017, uh, I walked into the White House to interview for the Fed vice chair job. Uh, I'd known Steven Mnuchin one past the IndyMac deal. And uh, so I spent uh, 90 minutes in the White House and uh, they asked me pretty much the same question you asked me. And that is, how would you regulate if you were in effect the principal bank regulator in, on the, in the world at the vice, as vice chair of the Fed? And what I delivered was uh, in large measure what I wrote down in the book. And that is my dissatisfaction and disappointment in how we have regulated uh, over the years and how that regulation has contributed to the creation of financial panics. And just as a sidelight, you know, I looked around the room in the White House while the people that were there uh, when I was being interviewed and I, I pretty, real, pretty quickly realized there wasn't a person in that room who understood what I was talking about. And uh, that sort of said to me that uh, this may not be the job for me, but <laughs> I, I, I walked out and by the time I got to Pennsylvania Avenue uh, out of the White House, I decided to write this book because I think it's important that we start focusing on the most efficient and effective ways to regulate. Because if we don't, we're just going to have panics over and over again. And one of the things I say in the book is, and one of the things that was shocking to me is, uh, Charlie Caloramus wrote a book, which I thought was terrific, and I, I, I read from cover to cover before I did mine. And one of the things he pointed out there was that the United States has had more financial crisis in the last two years than every other country on the planet but Argentina. Just think about that for a second. Right. How, is it, how is it that this sophisticated economy with the, the most uh, dynamic and complex markets 
and the most comprehensive regulatory oversight on the planet has the most financial crisis but for Argentina. And frankly, if we're comparing ourselves to Argentina uh, on a financial basis, that's not a good comparison. Right. So that all led me to the question of what is wrong with regulation? Why are we creating panics? Uh, and, and, and that, I thought about that for a long time and this book was really 45 years in the making, but what I concluded was that because there's a lag, you know, Congress sees a problem the problem is five years ago, we write some regulations, some statute and some regulations, and we put them in place. And, you know, we're sort of six years, seven years down the line from the problem. And we've got a new set of problems that we're not regulating. And so, you know, the one thing that I had always thought when I was a regulator working on regulatory issues, and even later as a, as a lawyer representing clients was, it makes no sense not to have real-time regulation. I mean, we live in a world where everything is real time. I mean, I represented a number of investment banks through my career who each night they went to sleep. They knew the market value of the investment bank. The entire organization was marked to market every day. And, and that kind of real time oversight struck me because I knew as regulators and then afterwards as a lawyer practicing in the area that regulators weren't getting daily real time information. And most of their oversight and regulation was pointed backward, not forward. So more times than not, you were doing an examination about what the bank had done the last three years, not what it or the economy was going to do in the next three years. And that led me to the conclusion that we need to fix this so that we have smarter regulation using artificial intelligence, big data, and all of the, the tools that are available to the private sector to make the regulation of financial institutions more predictive. Right. And the more predictive it'll be, the more likely it is we'll avoid financial crisis in the future. I, I want to get to some of your recommendations later, but a couple things struck me. One is, as you said, there's been uh, nine financial panics involving economic meltdowns over the last 200 years, 20,000 bank failures in the past two centuries, which you're right, given the sophistication, uh, quote unquote, of our our, our economy and our uh, our government, whatever, makes is is staggering. But the thing that I'm interested in, in addition to what you've just mentioned, is you're so right about Congress. I'm obviously coming from the anti money laundering space. I saw firsthand, you know, reaction to things. Laws would get passed, and then what would end up happening is additional laws would get passed. Nothing was ever changed. Now there's an AML law that was signed earlier this year that. Uh, potentially could make some change to the infrastructure. But for the most part, Congress reacts and they don't, um, they're not proactive, as you say, th throughout your book. But one of the things that I want you to talk about a bit, so um, your, your analysis of the Depression in 1929, and, and I'm obviously, this is just high level, but you tell me if I'm wrong. It seems that you, in part, or maybe uh, a lot, blame the Federal Reserve uh, for that. Explain that a bit to me, because I think a lot of us, you know, I'm a history major, so I don't high level. I understand what happened in 29, but I don't really know. But you dove into that. So what happened then? Because it seems it's a cons consistent theme through some of the other panics after the Depression. Yeah. So it's a great question, John. You know, I, until I got into really researching the years I had not been alive for. So you know, from the 70s on, I, I sort of lived most of this. Right. But before the 1970s, I had to go back and really dig in 
And one of the books on the Great Depression that was that is incredible, and I would recommend that to all your readers, is The Lords of Finance, uh, which is uh, a book about the central banks of the United States, Great Britain, France, and Germany. And there's an interesting byplay between them uh, that essentially concludes that because of friendships between Benjamin Strong, who was the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and at that time, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York was the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve Board in, in Washington was sort of a figurehead. Uh, and Benjamin Strong had a very close relationship uh, with uh, Montague Norman, who was the uh, exchequer or the president of the Bank of England. And Montague Norman uh, put a lot of pressure on Benjamin Strong not to raise interest rates during the 1920s and 1926 to 1928 period because it would have an adverse impact on Europe. Because of course, if we raised interest rates in this country, it would attract investment and it would attract uh, you know, debt securities and a flow of money. And at that time, it would affect the flow of gold across the Atlantic. Because you know, it's interesting when you read about this period, you sort of see a picture of gold in a ship going back and forth, depending on the trade and balance and, and interest rates and everything else. And Europe in the, in the 20s was going through some problems and, and the European central bankers put an enormous pressure on Benjamin Strong not to raise interest rates. Uh, and during that period, in effect, the Federal Reserve stayed silent in a period of rampant speculation with, which was being financed by the banks. And the theory is, and, and, and I, again, I point you to the Lloyds of Finance, but the theory is uh, that because interest rates stayed low in this country for two to three years, when they could have been raised to sort of dampen the economy, that that added to the speculation and the rampant speculation that went on in the stock market here, and it fed the stock market to make the final crash even larger than it needed to be. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's one of the things I didn't realize until I got into all this research was the enormous number of economists who basically are critical of the Fed. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty consistent theme of the Fed either not acting when it's expected to act, which of course is always a problem because if you have a regulator, you think that they're doing something, right? Or overreacting when it shouldn't react. And th there's a wide range of economists who are very critical of the Fed in that regard and continue to this day to be highly critical of the Fed and I've got my own views about how the Fed operates today in terms of managing the economy, which I wrote about in the book. Right. But, but the bottom line here is, is that the Fed was criticized for basically doing nothing and twiddling its fingers as the economy completely spun out of control and could have been, could have been restrained in some respects to the extent that interest rates were raised. They weren't raised because the European central bankers were pleading for that not to happen. And so the argument is that the Fed served the interest of Europe rather than the interest of the United States economy. And, you know, there's, there's a lot you can read on that. Right. No, I think people need to take a look both at the book you referenced, but also what you've covered here. So that leads me to the things you were around for, and that's the, the savings and loan crisis, uh, the, the issues in 2008, 2009, 
um, that I saw firsthand because I was at a financial institution at the time, the later ones. But part again, going back to your theme, uh, the politics of both, right? So the SNL crisis and perhaps, and also I assume that with the subprime lending in 2008, 2009 or before then, uh, there was policies that wanted to encourage home ownership. You make a statement in the book, I think a couple of times, that real estate seems to be a theme for a lot of problems, right? So the issue yeah. of real estate, and, we, and we've seen that in the money laundering space, right? The, the use of uh, people buying large chunks of uh, real estate with cash because they're hiding illicit proceeds. So we're sort of well aware of that. Uh, but give me your sense of why was it not greedy bankers, greedy people that cause these issues. You do, you do say to some degree, to be fair, that there's some of that that does happen, but it really the politics and the policies that sort of led to both the SNL crisis and obviously the financial panic in 2008 and 2009. Yeah. So what I figured out uh, living through the savings and loan crisis, and I'll talk about that in a minute, and then representing a wide range of investment banks and banks in the 2008 to 10 crisis was that if the government perverts the market through its regulation, if it distorts, it perverts is a bad word, distorts is a better word, the word right. I use in the book. If the government distorts the way the markets work through its regulation, well, then people are going to try to figure out how to make money off of that. That's their jobs, right? If you have a corporation, if you're in business, your business is to make money, all right? And so the problem becomes is if the regulators say you can't do A, well, businesses aren't going to say, well, I can't do A, I guess I'm out of business. They'll say, well, let's try to do B, right? But the government never thought about B. They thought about A, and they said, well, you can't, we don't want you doing A. So it moves the market to B, and B isn't regulated, or B isn't, nobody's thought about regulating B. So it's a, it's a constant movement in the marketplace. Marketplace never sits still for regulation. And what we saw in 2008 was that the way the markets were regulated with all of the prudential regulation focused on bank charters and no prudential regulation focused on mortgage bankers, mortgage brokers, some prime lenders. Right. What happened is that forces the risk out of the prudentially regulated system. It's only natural, right? The highest risk moves outside the system that is supposed to be regulating and managing risk. So it's counterproductive. And let me go back to the savings and loan crisis because that's what started this whole book. So, at the age of 31, I was appointed general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board. I sat down for my first briefing with Chairman Pratt, who had just been appointed chairman of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board. So he was the chairman, I was the general counsel. And we, a part of that agency was also the FSLIC, which was the sister to the FDIC. Right. And we sat down and got our first briefing in March of 1980. And um, <laughs> not Mar March of 1981, I'm sorry. And the head of supervision came in and he said, at the moment, every one of the 4,500 savings loans in the country will have failed in 24 months at current interest rates. Now, the current interest rates when I was sworn in, the six-month T-bill was 14.5%. Right. Mortgage interest rates actually hit 21% as did the 30-year T-bill. Yep. Right? So I said, well, wait a minute. How can every savings and loan be failing? That's not negligence. That's not crime and, and fraud. That's not greed. There's something systemic about that. And as I worked through the problem over the next three years and then thought about it over and over again and reflected on what had happened and why it had happened, 
it occurred to me that the savings and loan crisis, and which cost us $300 billion in the end, and the loss of some 1,400 savings and loans, and at the same time during those years, 1,600 commercial banks, so 3,000 institutions failed in the 1980s. Uh, it, it, it was very clear to me that the savings and loan crisis was 100% caused by government policies. What were those government policies? 1966, Congress decides, hey, it's a good idea to make savings and loans finance home ownership in America so we can get more home ownership, right? And so what they do is they pass Regulation Q, which says that savings and loans can't pay in excess of 5.5% on deposits. That way, of course, you're capping their cost of funds so that they can charge 7% for a mortgage. Right. Right. And that was the theory. And the states jumped on the bandwagon because all 50 states enacted state usury laws with respect to mortgage lending that were someplace between 6 and 12%. The majority were between 6 and 8 So when I was sworn in in March of 1981, the average thrift was paying uh, at that time something north of, well, it was still paying five and a half for its, for its deposits, which was causing an enormous amount of disintermediation because Merrill Lynch, Payne Weber, and Prudential had started money market funds, which were paying 12. Right? So who's going to take five and a half percent from the government, even if it is insured by the FSLIC, right. if they can get 12 percent from a money market fund, which is relatively safe, right? So that was one problem. The other problem is, is that their portfolios were 30-year fixed rate mortgages yielding 7% because they couldn't do more than that, largely because the states had passed usury laws. So here they are with portfolios where they're paying five and a half, yielding seven, seven and a half on 30-year fixed rate mortgages. And remember, by law, they could not make a variable rate mortgage. They could only make 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Right. So there they are locked into that position and rates go up to 21%. Liquidity goes out the back door. They have no liquidity. They can't sell assets to get liquidity because they'd be selling 7% assets in a 15% market, which means they'd get 50 cents on the dollar and go out of business if they sold enough mortgages to get liquidity. So they were in an incredible vice. What, what does Congress do? Congress then says, well, let's just, let's just deregulate the liability side. So in the, in the Depository Institutions and Deregulation and Monetary Control Act of 1980, they say, get rid of Reg Q. <laughs> and by 1983, a year and a half later, the average thrift is now paying 12 and earning 7.5%. They haven't been able to change the asset side, but they had to pay the 12% in the marketplace to compete with money market funds. Now, you know and I know you can't make up a negative yield spread of 5% on the volume. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. So, there's only so much you can do with that. And so I, I, I looked at that for many, many years and I said, this is just nuts. I mean, we just made an enormous public policy mistake and all we did was make it worse each time we acted. And that's what essentially caused me to look at all of these other crises and try to figure out what was going on and how it was happening. So in 2008, um, at least the, the common knowledge, uh, using that term in quotes, was that subprime lending caused all this. Again, going back to 
you know, reduced underwriting standards because there was apparently more funding going on, that sort of thing. But again, it was the policy was trying to drive home ownership, um, which has always been sort of a um, a goal, right, of uh, right. R's, and, R's and D's. How, how do we encourage people to be able to own their own homes and, you know, get away from renting and that kind of stuff? Tell, tell us your, your take on, on why things occurred. And, and I'll just prejudice your answer in one way. What I think you've also said in the book is the reaction to the to the crisis created some laws and regs, which you'll tell me if I'm wrong, that were being are being used now to sort of deal with the pandemic uh, issue that we're dealing with in 2020, 2021. But what was your take on why 2008 occurred? So, uh, again, that, that's, again, a very complicated mix of factors. And, sure. And, and I can't argue there that the government was 100 percent responsible for that crisis, as it was the savings alone crisis. Right. But I think it did create the backdrop and it did create the landscape for businesses to sort of take reckless actions uh, in a number of ways. So the first factor was in 1994, the Clinton administration decided uh, that it wanted to raise home ownership in this mer- in America from 62 to 68 percent, right? Uh, and that's where home ownership t- typically hovers around 60, 62 percent. And the Clinton administration decided owning a home is a great investment in America. It, it it is the greatest glue that keeps people together. We want more people to own more homes. A great and a terrific goal. Sure. But the question is, how do you get to that goal? Because you don't make 8 million more mortgages, which is, I think, the number that that percentage comes out to. You don't make 8 million more mortgages at the top of the ladder. You make them at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, right? Because that's where you've got to get those additional mortgages, which means you then have to then expand out your lending underwriting guidelines. You have to uh, dilute your underwriting guidelines to get that additional 8 million uh, borrowers. That started in the Clinton administration. And the next thing that happened was, of course, uh, the, the great uh, fair lending uh, movement by the Clinton administration to sue 36 banks for discrimination. Right. And I represented a number of those banks in that. And it was very clear to me that while some had engaged in practices that were probably uh, bad, if not very bad, most, most were basically victims of disparate impact arguments where basically they were turning down uh, mortgage applications because of underwriting requirements. And when those 36 lawsuits were brought against banks by the Clinton administration, well, the, as you will recall in that period, the banks got the message pretty quickly. Right. 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 So we don't want to be on the other side of a discrimination lawsuit because nobody's going to litigate that. Nobody wants that, that uh, taint on their reputation in a business where you make money through trust uh, of your customers. And so the banks got the, got the, got the uh, message pretty quickly. The Bush administration then followed up with the same set of policies. It wanted to increase home ownership again to get to 66 or 68% of Americans in homes. They continued to push those policies. And lo and behold, Wall Street saw how to make money out of this, right? Again, that's their job. Right, right. right. They saw, well, look at this. We got, we got 8 million more mortgages. And by the way, the people who manufactured washing machines liked 8 million more mortgages because there were 8 million more homes being bought. Mm-hmm. And on the other end of the spectrum, the mortgage, ba- the mortgage, the investment community and the investment bankers said, listen, 
if we if we securitize these and issue them, we can more fully irrigate the system to get more cash back into the system to make more mortgages. And that makes enormous sense, right? If I hold the mortgage on my books, eventually I run out of capital and I can't make any more mortgages. If I sell that mortgage and get the cash in to make more mortgages, I'm constantly irrigating my balance sheet and making more and more mortgages to try to create that extra 8 million mortgages in the country. And so Wall Street stepped in and said, look, we're here to help. We're going to help you irrigate your balance sheet, get cash in, and we'll buy those mortgages out and sell them into the marketplace to investors. And the problem with that is, and I, I call that chapter in my book, Nobody Washes a Rented Car. Right. Right. This mortgage is going from uh, point A all the way to an investor someplace in Peoria, Illinois, who buys a piece of a mortgage-backed security. And nobody's got any, any skin in the game. As they pass it, as they make the loan, they pass it along. Everybody gets a piece of the action, but there's no skin in the game until you get to the uh, end investor. And so the combination of all those factors essentially moved most of the high end risk in this country in the mortgage business out from under prudentially related, related institu regulated institutions. Yeah, uh, some made these subprime loans and a lot of them, a lot more, bought subprime mortgage-backed securities, which is the great, you know, John, it's always, always uh, confused me how that happened because it's the great mystery how we, we don't let a bank make a subprime mortgage loan because it's bad underwriting, right. but, they can, but they can buy a mortgage-backed security made up of subprime <laughs> loans. Right. And it's as if there's some, there's some pixie dust spread on it by, you know, the investment bankers and the rating agencies uh, because of the over collateralization and everything else. And all of a sudden it becomes a, a, a prime instrument. And I think we learned in the 2008 crisis after all those factors sort of blew up when subprime lending became questionable, that it doesn't work that way. It's not going to work that way. And at the end of the day, the critical point to walk away from from 2008 is that in the midst of all this confusion of government policies and rampant speculation and people trying to make money. The key is there's always a trigger point at which confidence is removed from the marketplace. Right. And that's the key. It is confidence. And we don't know when confidence is going to disappear. And, you know, people say, well, it was subprime mortgages. Subprime mortgages was not the crisis. Subprime mortgages was the trigger, Right. Subprime mortgages caused the spark that created a cloud over every other financial uh, asset in, on the globe. And so, because there weren't enough subprime mortgages in the world to cause the crisis we had, what it did do is it created a crisis of confidence where the value of every financial asset on every financial institution was now called into question. And that's what caused the crisis in 2008 when everything started to cease up. So Tom, here's what I wanna do. Take a break and I wanna come back uh, and focus on your recommendations. You talk about um, financial literacy, which I find interesting and important. You talked about um, what you call the attack of the algorithms, machines to the rescue, uh, being, being prepared. 
I also want to ask you a little bit about accountability, because one of the things that uh, we don't seem to have, uh, and and you can correct me, obviously, because there's a lot of litigation, so I'm not suggesting there's not ramifications, but I want to talk about that when we come back and also get your take on um, just overall smart regulation that you've already opined on a bit. So we'll, uh, we'll take a quick break and come back for the second part of this. This is again, Tom Vartanian's new book, 200 Years of American Financial Panics, Crisis, Recessions, Depressions, and the Technology That Will Change It All. <laughs> 